So what does it mean to be truly free? Is it the ability to be able to express yourself? Is it the ability to, to live exactly how you want to live? To self-govern, self-adjudicate, to be self-sufficient, to show self-restraint maybe, maybe, or to achieve self-actualization perhaps? Is it freedom from tyranny? Freedom from traditional authority structures? Freedom from those who would seek to enforce alien worldviews and value judgments on you and your personal preferences? Is it freedom from harm and oppression and corruption and discrimination and bigotry? Is it freedom from systemic failures that, that reinforce dominant power structures and the status quo? What does it mean to be truly free? I think it's human to crave freedom, isn't it? Human nature. And some of our, our greatest achievements have come in the quest for freedom, haven't they? But not all freedoms are good or fruitful. Last year, uh, a journalist named Matthew Hongoltz-Hetling, he wrote a book called A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. And uh, his reporting follows the adventures of a, a community of libertarians in the, in the United States that set out to create this perfect utopia together. And for those that don't know what a libertarian is, it's, it's a political ideology that believes that government intervention should be kept to an absolute minimum so that personal freedoms and individualism uh, can be maximised. So there's a strong uh, emphasis on market forces and economics, believing that ingenuity and the entrepreneurial spirit will overcome most challenges uh, and it will address the needs and desires of the people. So it's, it's this belief in absolute personal freedom. Anyway, libertarians, they've never really wielded much political power, or uh, whether it's state or federal. So they've never really been able to kind of road test their ideas in a real world setting, uh, until relatively recently, that is. In 2004, a ragtag group of libertarians descended on the small town of Grafton in, uh, in New Hampshire to implement this grand vision that they had. They called it the Free Town Project. And basically what they did was they took over that town's local government and they gutted the rules, the regulations, taxes, public services. And at first it started out great. People could set up and build houses as they want. Uh, there was this sense of camaraderie and creativity as people expressed their, their shared beliefs in this absolute autonomy. If you wanted to live in a shipping container, you could do that. Or maybe you wanted to live in a tent out in the middle of the woods. Go for it. If you wanted to chop down some trees or maybe blow up something that was inconvenient for you, who's going to stop you? You could grow copious amounts of marijuana if you wanted, and who's going to stop you? You were free to do as you saw fit. If you didn't feel like recycling, well, you didn't have to. If you wanted to settle a dispute with an unruly neighbour, well, you could take the law into your own hands. That sound good? Well. Uh, it wasn't long before it became a Wild West-style frontier town, predictably. It became overrun with garbage and crimes and sexual offences went up. Disputes continued to arise as people exercised their personal freedoms in increasingly intrusive ways. And then the bears started to come. It had been over 100 years since a bear attack in their town. Uh, now, it mostly contained uh, to the woods, as you'd expect. But when people decided to eat, sleep and live out there, along with the increased garbage that was just thrown around the town, well, it became a banquet for local bears. No rangers, no police. The town that had seen no need for public services, then had no rangers, no police, no firefighters, no doctors to help as the town became overrun with increasingly confident and aggressive bears. 
And you would think that this fairly bizarre situation would have stopped some time ago. But apparently, it's still going on now. There were bear attacks as late as last year. You see, they still haven't given up on their anti-government, pro-bear attracting ways. You see, it's easy to become stuck in your way, stuck in your ways when you're so convinced that you've got it right, that, that your way of seeing things is the right way. It's so easy to take your freedoms and your responsibilities for granted when you don't pay attention to the things that help a community function well. And I mention this as a way of connecting this kind of spirit of autonomy that we all have in some way, um, and we especially have it in our relationship with God. You see, it's easy to actually live as a spiritual libertarian, isn't it? Thinking that less is more when it comes to God. That to truly discover ourselves, first we need to unshackle ourselves from primitive religious beliefs or oppressive church structures and a God who has no right to interfere in my personal life choices. Why bother with Christianity? Surely we're better off without God. Free from his tyranny, free from his oversight. I mean, what does God even offer us anyway? Maybe you've asked that question. Maybe you still do. Some might feel that Christianity is irrelevant at best, but destructive and evil at worst. But I want to challenge those presumptions today. I want to make the case for why Christianity is worth bothering with, especially at a personal level. We may think that we don't need God, but the hardships of life require resilience, purpose, hope and community, of which all are found in Christianity. So we may think that we don't need God, but the hardships of life require resilience, purpose, hope and community, which are all found in Christianity. And so to kick off, I want to suggest that Christianity gives us hope through hardship. So Christianity gives us hope through hardship. And by hardship, I'm going to tap into two things, uh, both meaning and suffering. So the two are often very connected. The, uh, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre described human existence as one of condemnation, in that we're condemned to be free because once thrown for our choices, and we're to live with the consequences, aren't we? While life gives us endless possibilities and experiences to encounter, it can also be a, a massive burden to create a life that's meaningful and satisfying and fulfilling in the long term. The anguish of freedom can leave people feeling paralysed or, or full of regret when life doesn't pan out as we, we hoped it would, or even when it doesn't deliver on what was promised. One of my favourite books uh, is uh, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And it looks at things like uh, work and wealth and success, intelligence, identity, possessions, and how each and every one of those things can, can promise a certain outcome, but, but leave us feeling empty when we fail to get them. Or even if we do get them, they fail to live up to expectations. You see, we live in a world that struggles to overcome the loss of meaning when temporal goals and outcomes and ideals fail us. But it's also something that young people experience a lot too. It's not just, it doesn't just come with life experience, it also comes with looking forward. There was a massive study conducted by the OECD, so that's the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, and they looked at uh, schools in, in the 79 countries in 2018. And they had a, a section asking students to grade their sense of meaning in life. And they were given three statements to which they could either agree, disagree, it was all along uh, like a spectrum of satisfaction. Uh, the first uh, question was, my life has clear meaning or purpose? So that was the first statement. 
The second statement, I have discovered a satisfactory meaning in life. And the third statement was, I have a clear sense of what gives meaning to my life. And one of the interesting findings was that the more affluent or advantaged you were, the less likely you were to respond positively to these statements. And another trend was that the more secular or less religious the country, the lower the sense of meaning that young people had. And for those interested, Australia ranked uh, 11th worst. And so I want to say that Christianity actually has something to offer in this space. You see, Christianity can provide authentic meaning in a world of superficiality. Romans 12, which we read earlier, talks about offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which at first probably sounds pretty weird. But what it's essentially saying is that your life and every choice that you make can be used to live for God. And, and what's more than that, it will be pleasing to him. That relationship with God gives you a freedom to live and knowing that God is going to be pleased with you when, you when you live in relationship with him. No matter the outcome, you'll be cherished and accepted in God's eyes. This can be incredibly liberating. Now, the rest of the Bible is rich with all sorts of meaningful stories and guidance and practices and reminders and wisdom for, for navigating day-to-day -day life. But the idea of living for something outside of yourself is a massive source of me meaning for Christians. It's massive. And there's nothing really bigger than the living for the God of the universe. There's nothing bigger than that. Which I hope to flesh out through the rest of this talk. So Christianity can provide authentic meaning in a world of superficiality, but it can also provide authentic comfort in a world averse to pain. It can provide comfort in a world averse to pain. In um, 2019, the talk show host uh, Stephen Colbert and news anchor Anderson Cooper uh, interviewed each other about grief and their, their shared experience of suffering. So there should be a little slide which uh, shows what they look like if you've never seen them before. Yep, there they are. Not that you can see that particularly well. They're fine, uh, fine strapping young men. <coughs> anyway, they talk about both losing their dad when they were 10 years old. Stephen lost his and two brothers in a plane crash on September 11 of all dates in 1974. And they talk about there being kind of two selves, two different people before and after the tragedies. So the, the Stephen Colbert before his father's death, naive in so many ways and uh, a blissful existence. But then there was the Stephen Colbert afterwards, the vastly different one who had to rebuild his life. Now, personally, he was shattered, of course, but he, he talked about what the process of reforming himself was as one of letting go of the things that he thought were central to life. Important things supposedly lose some of their power. Things that have status don't have status anymore. And when he was asked uh, how his mum took the loss, he talked about her faith and the way that she prayed because God knew what it was like to lose a child. And this had a massive impact on Stephen's faith throughout the rest of his life. He said this, We're asked to accept the world that God gives us and to accept it with love. If God is everywhere and in everything, then the world as it is, is all just an expression of his love and you have to accept it with gratitude. I don't want it to have happened. I wish it didn't happen. But if you're going to love life, you need to love all of it. You can't pick and choose what you're grateful for. What do you get from love? Which allows you to love more deeply and understand what it's like to be a human being. End quote. 
So it's a profound, it's a profound interview and it, it draws out a number of biblical truths that can comfort us in our suffering. And I, I particularly appreciate the point about praying to one who's lost a son. But also reflecting on Jesus himself. We have a God that endured torture and injustice, humiliation, abandonment, betrayal and a drawn out excruciating death for us. You see, God is intimately familiar with our suffering. And this gives us comfort at our lowest points. But he also gives us each other to love and to serve one another in times of need. Which is another reason why I think Christianity is worth bothering with. Which brings us to the second point. Christianity gives us a community to be loved in. So Christianity gives us a community to be loved in. One of the things that COVID has laid bare is the need that we have as humans to be immersed in human relationships. As lives and physical communities have been uprooted throughout the pandemic, there's of course talk of a shadow pandemic in the form of uh, mental health as the world deals with the fallout and corporate grief uh, and this increased sense of isolation and loneliness that we've all experienced in some way. We need each other. And Christianity, at its best, provides a a wonderful and unique experience of community. It's one that transcends class and status and power, race, language, profession, political allegiances, hobbies, gender, even time itself. You become part of a tradition and a community that, that not only transcends these divisive categories, but it's an encounter with transcendence itself as God works through the church to change lives. It's more than weekend sports or book clubs or school communities or local interest groups. And while these things are wonderful and a great place to share uh, kind of ideas in common and interests in common, because it says that we belong to make that claim. Most others are based on these shared interests and, and demographics, so it's in many ways uh, a relationship of convenience. And if your interests or circumstances change, well, you just join a different one. And yet, that's not how the Bible frames Christian community. It's built on celebrating difference, welcoming the stranger, the foreigner, the vulnerable, the unlovely, the other, the person that's not like you. It says the church is one body made up of many parts, with different gifts and all used for the common good all celebrated for their unique contribution, no matter how humble. It's a place of interconnectedness, accountability, continuity and growth together. Not in a kind of meddling or invasive way, but in a way that facilitates service to one another, sharing one another's mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. The ebbs and flows of life put in the context of God's unfolding story in our individual lives. It's a place to call home, where we can experience love and having our needs met. But it's also a community where we can love and serve others too. And help them to have their needs met. To to give ourselves to others. So it's a place we can call home, but it's big enough for everyone to call home, together. Most of the language in this passage is about the church's commitment to one another through service. So it's other person-centred. Look at verse 10. It says, be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Or in verse 16, it says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. 
do not be conceited. You see, a church, we should be leaving our pride at the door and see dignity in each and every person. And that's what the Christian community looks like at its best. Where Christians are interested and resistant to tribal loyalties and unhelpful stereotypes and judgmentalism. Well, verse 13, it says, to share with the Lord's people who are in need and to practice hospitality. Your experience of coming to church should be that people want to get to know you and want to help you in times of need. And for those of us who are regulars at church, these passages ought to make us slightly uncomfortable as well because it demands connecting with and investing in the people around us in a deep and purposeful way. So are we doing it? We're doing it here at Seoul. Is my home church doing it? Uh, The churches around Greater Hobart doing it? Are we known for our hospitality and our connection and our care for others? Are we getting to know the people in our church, working out ways to help those who are struggling? Could be practical, physical, financial, spiritual, mental or emotional help. Building fences for the elderly or building bridges between estranged spouses. Welcoming new birth or celebrating safe passage home to our maker. Helping young people navigate school and the workplace and university or helping empty nesters settle in well to their next stage of life. Helping those who have lost work or loved ones to find the comfort and hope that comes from knowing Jesus. And inviting each other into our homes and our private spaces. Some of the most rewarding relationships come in the unexpected places. And inviting fellow travellers into your home can help them feel more connected with the church, but it can also help you as well. And that's the church at its vibrant best, reflecting the, the welcoming, generous, relational nature of God and of Christ. The man that hung out with tax collectors and sinners and outcasts. The man who came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The man who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. The man who invites us into his kingdom of love and prepares a room for each and every one of us. A seat at the table of the heavenly banquet. That's what the church community should look like. A place where everyone is cared for and there's no debt outstanding except the debt to love one another more. I think that's a community worth joining. That's worth bothering with, particularly in a lonely world. Finally, though, I want to make the case that Christianity gives us a basis for change. Christianity gives us a basis for change. And to do that, I want to take us back to the start of Romans 12. The chapter begins with, uh, therefore, and the preceding 11 chapters of the book uh, outline the magnitude of the Christian gospel and what exactly is achieved through the death of Christ and the cross. It talks about our hearts and the the way that we're hardwired for self-interested acts, or or sin, as we call it in Christian theology. This results in a suffering world and fractured relationships with God and his planet and each other, and how even by trying to be good and religious and following, we do it with selfish motives, we all still fail. We do it with selfish motives and rank hypocrisy. We can never be good enough to earn our way to heaven. All along, we've needed another way to connect with God. And that way comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Where his perfect life covers over our misdeeds, our evil actions, where his perfect death gives us life. And where his perfect relationship with the Father extends to us. 
where the old is gone and the new has come. This is the context for Romans 12. It talks about living for him as your act of spiritual worship. But it also talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is, his perfect, good and pleasing will. And at first you might think, why would we want to test and approve God's will? Why should that matter? But the clue comes straight after. We believe God's will or his intentions, they're good, perfect and pleasing. You see, God wants good for us in this world. Not in a kind of rich and famous and successful kind of way, but in our character, in the life that we live, in the way that we treat others, in the things that we stand for. We believe that the very best that humanity has to offer are the core elements of God's character. Love, and God reflects it. He's the very essence and definition of good. He's the architect and giver of all the blessings that we experience. And because of that, genuine change for the better is possible. We're made in the image of God and we can become more like he intends for us to be. But this change being suggested, it doesn't come from deep within a New Year's resolution or a promise to your partner to be better after failing again. It's more than changing bad habits and tendencies and negative thoughts. It's more than wishful or positive thinking or self-determination. No, it comes in light of God's mercy and sacrifice. You see, it's based on God's mercy. That's what Christians have been reflecting on and celebrating with the the, the life-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, his death is for us and for our sin and our failures. And we can be washed clean, forgiven. Our guilt and regrets and shame, they can be forgotten. They can be no more. We're given the ultimate fresh Christ as our starting point, but also our finish line. We're in safe hands throughout. And this is our basis for change. Not that change from within, but a change that comes from outside, from God himself. The Bible talks about God putting his spirit in us and us taking on the nature of Christ as he lives in there. And this is truly transformative. And what does it look like? Well, it's expressed in humility and gratitude. Look at verse 3. It says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. In many ways, I think that these two attributes, they're, they're the secret source that Christianity has at its best to offer the world. The ability to grapple with one's ego and pride and insecurity and weakness and to instead replace it with an assurance that, that God knows us even better than we know ourselves and says that we're acceptable to him because of Christ. So there's a thankfulness there, an appreciation for the things that we have and the life we've got, no matter how difficult. Just as Stephen Colbert was talking about, just as Amanda was talking about. We can love life in a way we never thought possible because we're in sync with the one who made it all and gives it to us as a gift. And this is liberating. We don't need to achieve wild success or wealth or social prestige or the best reputation. We don't need to conjure up some impressive... We don't need to pretend. We can be who we are. We can be upfront and vulnerable. We can let go. We can acknowledge our struggles. We can show and express contrition for the pain that we've caused others, knowing that we're forgiven and that change is possible. Forgiveness, humility and gratitude, they become a lethal cocktail in purging self-destructive thoughts and behaviours and patterns. 
And ongoing forgiveness changes our actions. Ongoing gratitude changes our attitude. And ongoing humility changes our humanity. We see the best in others and we want them to have what we have in Christ. So why not consider immersing yourself in the Christian community? To close, I want to come back to the question of freedom. To close, I want to come back to the question of freedom. And to do that, I want to compare it with the, um, the Bitcoin phenomenon. So um, Paul Krugman, the, the famous economist uh, who won a Nobel Prize in 2008, he's a self-identified crypto-skeptic. And he gives a, a couple of reasons for this. I see a few people smiling because they're probably heavily invested in crypto and wondering where this is going to go. <laughs> so he gives a couple of reasons. The first being that, that Bitcoin is an unnecessarily complex way of doing uh, financial transactions when history, for the most part, has been going in the opposite direction. So we, we've moved from then to bank no notes and now we largely go cashless, either with a square reader beep or just doing everything online with our phones. But Bitcoin goes the other way. So that's the, the first reason. That it's kind of a, a return to the physical. But the other reason is because Bitcoin is decentralised and untethered to financial institutions and traditional government structures that can guarantee their worth. So it's an unpredictable rogue form of currency. What's a Bitcoin worth right now? Anyone know? <laughs> Someone does. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, <coughs> why is it worth that much? I'm sure less people would be able to answer that. And how long is it going to stay that way? They might continue to rise in value. They might crash hard one day. No one really knows, do they? And I share this because I wonder if it's a great metaphor for the spir spiritual libertarian in all of us. You see, it's tempting to live life in a decentralised, unpredictable and optimistic way. Just thinking that, of course our life has value. Of course it has meaning, and of course it's going to withstand the volatility of life and the ups and downs. But I don't think that this approach will work in the long run. You see, it's important to tether and connect yourself to something that can guarantee your worth. And Christianity does this. You see, you're made in the image of God. You belong to him, you have value, and one that's all of us to connect with him, to be a branch in his tree of life. In John chapter 15, 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. He goes on to say, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So why not start your spiritual connection with Christ today? Be tethered to him. You'll find that Christianity is not only worth bothering with at a personal level, but that it's the best form of freedom that one can actually have. Let's pray to, to wrap up together. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you help us in so many ways, uh, that you guarantee our worth, that we're made in your image, and that no matter what we do, we know we can have forgiveness in Christ. We give thanks for all the ways that you help us, the way that you give us community to, to love one another and to also be loved. Uh, you give us that uh, comfort in times of pain, uh, meaning when it's hard to find it, uh, we, we thank you so much for this life that you give us, that it can be a gift for us and that we can find acceptance in Christ. So please help us with that. Help us to think through these things and help us to know that living for you is the best possible form of freedom that we can have. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.